0: When we think of the name Amos, we think of a minor prophet. Minor only in the sense that he is listed among the minor prophets who wrote less material than the major prophets. In terms of importance, as we've often said, certainly there's no difference in the main, the major and the minor prophets. They were all major in God's sight. Those who were faithful to the Lord. This morning I want us to think about some wonderful lessons from Amos, a minor prophet who was a major figure, a major character in God's plan for seeking to save his people from sin. He was not a trained prophet. Amos was a country boy. In fact, he stated in his writings, I was no prophet, nor was I son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. The very first verse of Amos in chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that he was from Tekoa. That's about 12 miles south of Jerusalem. And yet, though he was from the south, he was a prophet to the north primarily, that is to the northern kingdom of Israel during a time that was characterized by extreme prosperity and greed. It was a time when the rich got richer and the poor got poorer because of the oppression of the rich against the poor and the gross immorality of the times. Listen to some passages, key passages from the book. In Amos chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, And pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go in to the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. What a statement. What an indictment. And then Amos 3 verse 12. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion... Two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria, the capital city, that is, of the northern kingdom, Samaria, in the corner of a bed and on the edge of a couch, Amos 3.12. And then three verses later, Amos 3.15. God says, I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. Notice, winter houses and summer houses, they were doing very well. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. And then Amos 6, 4 through 6. There, God, through the prophet Amos, speaks of those who, quote, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph, that is, Israel, the people. You're taking real good care of yourselves and you care little or nothing for the poor, And for those who are afflicted, in fact, you are the primary cause of their affliction from these passages we have read. There's so many lessons we may learn from this courageous country boy, Amos, and from this great book. The first of these lessons, I think, is that God has a job for each of us. When we think of his background, we think of a man who would have been Least likely in the minds of other human beings, that is, to be chosen for such a courageous and important task, and yet God chose him. And it reminds us that God does have a job for each of us. When you look at the contrast between the preacher Amos and his audience, he was from the country; they lived in the city. He was a common shepherder and his uh, a sheepherder, and his audience lived in the political capital. He was a foreigner to them. A complete foreigner to them. And yet despite all of this, Amos was the man for the job. And there's no indication that Amos ever hesitated or made any excuses about his background versus the assignment that God was giving him. He took it on. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. And utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Amos 1 and verse 2. He was not intimidated. He was not intimidated by riches. He was not intimidated by that pride and arrogance. Everything about these people to whom he prophesied. But he was just a fearless country boy. But God did not choose him accidentally. He did it purposefully, and God has not always chosen his leaders as we would. We talked about Moses in the Bible class this morning. Moses was slow of speech, and obviously Moses lacked self-confidence. He was a humble man, but he lacked self-confidence to the extent that, as we pointed out in chapter 4, verse 14, I believe it is, that God was angry with Moses because he kept offering excuses as to why he was not the man for the job. But God reassured him, you are the very one that I want. And look at the ultimate outcome of that. Look at the growth process that Moses himself experienced and became one of the greatest men in all of Scripture. The very type, one of the very types of Christ as the mediator between God and his people of old, as Christ is the one mediator today between his people now. Numbers 12.3 says Moses was meek, Above all men who were upon the face of the earth. And yet he was not the obvious choice. He did not think he was the obvious choice to accomplish what God wanted him to accomplish. David was not the obvious choice, was he, as the first, or as the second king of the United Kingdom. Saul was the first king. He didn't work out well at all. And when the choice was to be made to replace Saul, Jesse, the father of David and these other sons, had how many? Seven of his sons passed before Samuel, and he left David out. His own father left him out. 1 Samuel 16. But what did God remind Samuel about? I don't look upon things as man does. God looks upon the heart, not on the outward appearance. Jesus chose men to become his disciples whom the religious leaders of his day would never have chosen. In fact, on many occasions, they marveled that he had and that these men of Galilee could speak as they did. And there are many people, perhaps even today, that feel they're of little value to God and that they really cannot do that much we need to be reminded that God can use every one of us, and he will use every one of us if we'll let him. You may be just the right person for a particular task. A task that perhaps others are not as well suited for, and yet you may not view yourself in that way. And so our first lesson from the country preacher is God has a job for each of us and amos did his extremely well though he was a very unlikely candidate for the task but we also learn from amos that the greatest credential we can possess is faithfulness to god the greatest credential we can possess is faithfulness to god how many preachers have you ever heard introduced by other preachers or elders perhaps who were about to speak and Maybe after listing some various credentials, they say, but the most important thing about this man is that what? He's a faithful gospel preacher. That's the most important thing for any preacher of the gospel. It's the most important thing for any child of God. Faithfulness to God is our greatest credential. How many degrees did Amos have? Some today would view Amos as too different to be effective but he was not too different. Faithfulness to God is the most important ingredient in producing a successful effort for the Lord. And how many times has God in the scriptures demonstrated that to us? I think of Gideon. Gideon comes to mind. And you think of all the, the uh, host of uh, soldiers that uh, began in that process that ultimately was dwindled down to what? 300 men. Gideon and 300 men. Oh, yes, God does not always choose whom we might think would be chosen. The greatest credential we can possess is faithfulness to God, and that's the most important thing to God. But another lesson from Amos is that God, and this is a vital one, of course, God does not overlook sin in his people. Listen to Amos 8, verses 1 and 2. Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? So I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. God said, I'm not passing by them anymore. Basically, their iniquity is full. And I have been patient, and I have passed by, is the idea of that phrase, passing by. But no more. No more. And in prophesying about the sins of Israel and the consequences that would follow, Amos used some psychology, if you will. He used some psychology on God's people by speaking out against other nations first. And when you read the book, and I encourage you to do that, because, Lord willing, I think we'll look at one other lesson uh, in a couple of weeks, on on Amos and the famine of hearing the word. And so I encourage you to spend time with this great book. But in prophesying, the psychology he used was he talked about other nations and their sins first, and so Damascus, Syria. He spoke about spoke about Damascus warring against God's people. Then he came to Gaza, among the Philistine cities. Gaza, he says, transgressed against God's people. What about Tyre? You remember Tyre and Sidon on the Phoenician, uh, in the in Phoenicia up there on the coast. Tyre did not remember the brotherly covenant. Amos pointed out. Then he came to Edom, and he said, Edom fought his brother. You remember the Israelites coming through, and uh, the Edomites not uh, letting them come through their land. Amon. Ammon, rather, was cruel in war. Then he spoke of Moab. Moab sinned against Edom. So he's gone through Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. And can you imagine at this point in time, Israel, God's own people hearing all of this, were saying what? Amen. (laughs) You preach it, brother. (laughs) Let them have it. And then he came to their sins. Amos 2.6 begins with Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals, a passage we noted earlier. Eight of the nine chapters in the book of Amos, eight of the nine are directed against Israel. They were the main thrust of Amos' prophecies. You know, we don't like to think about sin among God's people. We don't like to hear about it because it's not pleasant. But at times it is It is there. It is there. And the majority of the New Testament, when you examine it, deals with sins in the church. And so we have to recognize the grave consequences of allowing sin to find refuge in the church. That's the problem. It's not a question of sin ever arising because we're human beings. And so sin sin arises at times, but the key is it cannot find refuge in the church. There's a difference between a refuge from sin and a refuge for sin. And the church is never meant to be a refuge for sin, but from sin. And that doesn't mean that we're all perfect individuals in the church, But by a refuge from sin, I mean we're composed and comprised of those who are striving to live lives that are pleasing to God. And when we sin, we immediately repent. We constantly walk in the light and we continue to pray for forgiveness. We're not talking about that sin that characterizes all of us from time to time. But sin that rears its head, that is ignored and not dealt with in the church and in individuals' lives. Division begins with the individual. Immorality begins with the individual. Apathy begins with the individual. Malice begins with the individual. And it must never be allowed to fester and to spread. You know, Revelation 3 and verse 20 shows us the church at Laodicea had driven Jesus out. Think about that. The church at Laodicea had driven Jesus out. He was standing at the door and knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. They had driven him out and he was knocking, seeking re entrance. And so we always, always work to keep the church pure. Because Jesus will always be outside of a congregation like Laodicea. Therefore, we must ever guard against ever trending in any way toward that kind of situation and take very seriously sin because God takes it seriously. And the book of Amos tells us he does not overlook it. But there's another lesson from Amos, and that is that luxury and indifference go together. Luxury and indifference are partners. (laughs) Hear the words in Amos 6, 1. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Woe to you. How many times have you heard that phrase probably worked into a sermon? Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. We can never be at ease in Zion as this verse depicts ease. We must ever be energetic in Zion and working and laboring for the Lord in Zion. That is in the church which is spiritual Zion today. But this verse, Amos 6-1 shows a spirit of unconcern. And when we look at Amos 6 verses 3 through 6, we see the reason why there was the unconcern. Woe to you who put off, put far off. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who cause the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches, Eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. Who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. We read that passage earlier. You do all of these things at ease in Zion while you are not grieved for the affliction around you among my people. The people of Israel were indifferent to God. They were indifferent to their brethren. And so at times we find that situation today. Even in the Lord's church, why do congregations with memberships in the 400s have about 250 maybe attend on the Lord's day? Why do some congregations reduce their attendance by 50% or sometimes more between Sunday morning and Sunday night? And Wednesday night perhaps goes down even more. Why do many members give a small fraction of their income to the Lord? Why do some split the body of Christ by their divisive actions? Why do many fail to extend compassion to a brother or sister in need? At ease in Zion. We must never find ourselves at ease in Zion. Never in the situation where luxury luxury, and indifference become partners. And then there's a final lesson from Amos that I think is vitally important as well, and that is that God absolutely abhors formalism and ritualism. He abhors formalism and ritualism. Listen to Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 11. Read along with me if you can. Hear this, if you can get there quickly enough, I'll give you a moment. This is a little more lengthy reading. Amos 8, verses 4 through 11. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy, and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be passed, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat? making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall the land not tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming. Says the Lord God that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Amos eight four through eleven. As I said, Lord willing, in a future lesson, we're going to talk about that famine of hearing the words of God. But think about, think about the formalism and ritualism that characterize God's people. Look at it again. When will the new moon be passed? is what the people were asking, and the Sabbath. How soon can we get back to taking advantage of the poor? How soon can we get back into the marketplace where we can make more money? Get the Sabbath over with. Let these feast days pass where we're prohibited from doing what we really love to do. And that is not to serve God by any means. And yet, yet, think about it. They were still very strict about their religious services, but not their religious service. They went through the, rea- the uh, formality and the ritual of the new moons and the Sabbath days, but they kind of hated every minute of it, really. There was no real conviction. There was no translating of God's Word into their daily living. And that's an important lesson for us to make sure we never lose sight of. Translation into daily living. And so as we conclude, we see the powerful and courageous prophet Amos coming into a sin-sick, materialistic society and courageously pointing out their sin and pointing them to God. And in so doing the courageous country boy from Tekoa teaches us that God can use everyone, that our greatest credential is faithfulness, that God does not overlook sin in his people, and therefore we must not, that luxury and indifference go hand in hand, and that God abhors formalism and ritualism. We need to remember these lessons and never forget that our relationship to God is the most important matter in our lives. What is your relationship to God this morning? If you're not a Christian, there is no relationship there, but there can be. There can be this very day. If you will express faith in Jesus as the Christ, repent of your sins, confess him to be the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Those are the conditions upon which God will Blot out forevermore from His book of remembrances your sins. Believe that I am He, or die in your sins. John 8:24. Repent, or perish. Luke 13:3. Confess Me, and I'll confess you. Jesus said. Matthew 10:32. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. And as we do those things and come forth from that watery grave, we're added to the church that Jesus shed His precious blood to purchase. And in that kingdom. We are never to be at ease in Zion, that spiritual Zion, but always at work, laboring lovingly and looking forward to the time when we can see him face to face. If you need to come home to that first love because of sin in your life that needs to be repented of in a public way, we plead with you to come home and rest assured that as you do, genuinely and penitently, God welcomes you home with open arms. As we stand to sing, will you come?
1: Your garments with sin here below. My sheep and my lambs must be whiter than snow, whiter than snow, whiter than snow, whiter than snow. Whiter than snow. Whiter than snow, whiter than snow, far wither than snow, and as fair as the day, for Christ is the fountain to wash guilt away, Oh, give him poor sinner, that burden of thine, and enter the foe with the ninety and nine, whiter than snow, whiter than snow. Ride over temptation and cease your alarms. Your shepherd is Jesus, your refuge is arms. He'll never forsake you, a brother and friend, but love you and save you in worlds without end, wider than snow, wider than snow. seated, please. Please turn to number eighty-eight zero. <clears throat> we'll sing the second and fourth verses to prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> for me, it was in the garden. He prayed not my will. But thine he had no tears for his own grief but sweat drops of blood for mine how marvelous how wonderful and my song shall ever be how Marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrow. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you now, we take of this bread, which represents the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, upon that cross, may we remember the significance of this act which we're about to partake in and examine ourselves as we partake of this loath, Father. For it's Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
0: now heavenly father as we continue the remembrance of the death of your son in this memorial supper we consider his blood and the importance to us as your children by through it we have salvation because through it our sins were forgiven we thank you now for this cup in christ's name we pray amen
1: That concludes the Lord's Supper. We now have this time to give back a portion of what we have been blessed with. Let's pray. Father, now that we come before you to give back to you what we have been so richly blessed with, Father, we pray that we do so with a cheerful heart, Father, and we give not as we give freely, Father, so that we may have the opportunity to further the work of the kingdom. For it's Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please turn to number 63. 63. We'll sing the first verse, then Brother Heathcock will dismiss us. If you would, please stand. <clears throat> he leadeth me, all oh, blessed. And that leadeth me, he leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he Our gracious Heavenly Father, we approach thy throne of grace thanking you for the opportunity we've had to come and
0: study your word and to be with our fellow Christians. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would go with us as we depart, that you would guide, guard, and direct us and bring us back the next appointed time. For this is our prayer in Christ Jesus.